We'll turn to Genesis 25, and we'll be going back and forth a number of times through a pretty good chunk of Genesis here. And it's our joy to continue our study in the Pentateuch. We did, just as a reminder, five introductory messages on the entire Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and now we're walking through each book individually in uh, my plan is 11 messages each. I doubt I will stick to that plan. I'm sure there's going to be a time where I slow down a little. But we're trying to do it in 11 messages each, one introductory message for each book, and 10 messages to get us through the whole book. And so we return, as we often have now, to Israel on the banks of the Jordan River. They're on the plains of Moab looking out at the land that has been promised to them. And they're receiving now fresh instruction in the law of God. Instruction by Moses as the second generation of Israelites after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. They've been educated that God is the creator of all things. They've been educated that, that God is greater than all the false gods of the Canaanites that they're about to displace in front of them. And God is greater than all the false gods of Egypt that are behind them. They've heard the history of Abraham that the one true God called him from Ur of the Chaldeans to make a covenant with him. They've heard the promises of the Abrahamic covenant, how God would bring from him, out from him, a chosen nation, a land, and a seed ultimately fulfilled in the singular seed of Jesus Christ. And we saw last time how God's promises to make Abraham the father of many nations, these promises were fulfilled and at least illustrated in Ishmael, the son of Hagar, and in the six sons of Keturah. That Abraham, really that changed name from Abram, is more indicative of the fact that he's the father of Gentile nations as well. And this was a beautiful living illustration of how God would use the one chosen nation ultimately to bring forth the Savior, Jesus Christ, who would offer salvation to all the nations, encompassing all peoples, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, including those who came from Abraham. And we would remember that all of this, keeping in mind that the, the ultimate theme of the Bible, all of this is to bring about the ultimate plan of God, which we've called the central directive of Genesis 1, 26 through 28, which gives the purpose of the entire Bible, and that is that mankind would rule and subdue the earth as the vice regents of God, enjoying and worshiping and glorifying God for all time in a pristine, perfect creation. And of course, sin entered into the world, and now the Pentateuch lays the foundation for how God will will redeem and restore his kingdom plan, which has always been the same. And so now, as Moses tells this story to Israel, ultimately, he'll give the written version in the inspired text that we have as the Pentateuch. And now he comes to Abraham's grandson, to Jacob. There's relatively little information about Isaac, the generation in between. And so Jacob um, is clearly the one the Holy Spirit wanted to emphasize for us. But following the Toledot structure, the these are the generation structures we've talked about in Genesis, Jacob's story does begin with Isaac, as we'll see shortly here in a moment in Genesis 25, 19. Now, we're covering 11 chapters this evening. This is the saga of Jacob. Obviously, we just have to kind of touch on some mountain peaks briefly, but there's so many important aspects to really rightly understand 
the Holy Spirit's intent, the Holy Spirit's message. We can't just turn this into a biographical study and learn a couple of lessons from Jacob. So here's my game plan for tonight. First of all, we're just going to walk through the story to re-familiarize ourselves with the saga of Jacob. And then I want to look for a short time at the offspring of God. We'll look for a short time at the providence of God. And then we'll spend the majority of our time this evening on the salvation of God. So that's kind of our our plan. We'll walk through the story, the offspring of God, the providence of God, and the salvation of God. So we'll be going through this text a number of times. So first of all, let's just walk through the story and remind ourselves of really one of the most amazing and epic stories in all of the Bible. The saga of Jacob begins with the account of his birth. Chapter 25, verse 19 These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan and Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Rebecca received a word from the Lord that her pregnancy wasn't a normal pregnancy. It was epic. Verse 23, And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. You think it's hard to be pregnant with twins. She's pregnant with twin nations. And so this is a big deal. And when she gave birth, out came first a little red hairy kid with a smooth boy hanging onto his heel. Esau, the outdoorsman, and Jacob, the non-outdoorsman. Right at the end of chapter 25, Jacob, now they're adults, will take advantage of Esau, and he'll scheme to get Esau to give him his firstborn family birthright. And in chapter 26, the focus shifts momentarily back to Isaac. And Isaac shows that he has the same sinful DNA the same propensity for deception that his father Abraham had, which apparently will be passed down to Jacob as well. Isaac pulls the old Abraham trick with the king of the Philistines, telling him that his wife Rebekah is actually his sister, so that the king of the Philistines won't kill him for her. And once again, God protects his chosen ones, and even giving great bounty in the midst of that deception. Look with me at chapter 26, verse 12. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold in one year. Wouldn't you like to invest a hundred dollars and multiply that times a hundred in one year? That's what he did by God's grace. Verse 13. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. The Abrahamic covenant, the promise to Abraham of great personal blessing was now coming true in the life of Abraham's son, Isaac. And like Abraham, Isaac got into a conflict over a well. And you wonder, why why is this argument over well rights, over water rights, why is this here in the Bible? Well, it illustrates that ultimately this land belongs to Abraham's family. And so we keep having these land conflicts that shows that someday God will resolve that conflict. And then Isaac would break with tradition. You would think that as the biological second son of Abraham, remember he's the younger brother of Ishmael, you would think he might be sensitive to the younger son Jacob, but he wasn't. Mom and dad started playing favorites. Chapter 27, verse 1. 
When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, and he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die." Isaac is preparing to give Esau the all-important official prophetic blessing. This is the infamous chapter, of course, in which Rebekah then uh, schemes with Jacob to trick Isaac since Isaac's eyesight was failing. Kind of a dirty trick to take, take advantage of a blind man. And so by dressing up as Esau and smelling like Esau, Jacob fooled Isaac and received the blessing of the firstborn. And by the way, the interesting thing here is that we've already seen that Rebecca received an oracle from the Lord that the older would serve the younger. She didn't need to do this, but she did take matters into her own hands, I guess just her own little insurance policy. Well, Esau was crushed, and not only was he crushed, but he was mad, and he expressed his intention to murder Jacob just as soon as Isaac died, which turns out, interestingly, wouldn't be for several more decades But Rebekah tricked Isaac into sending Jacob away. Look at chapter 28, verse 1. Rebekah had tricked him. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. He acts like it was his idea. This is Rebekah's idea. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. And on the way to his family home, Jacob received a vision from the Lord in the land that was promised to Abraham, his grandfather. Chapter 28, verse 12. And he dreamed and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it And said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. What did God just do? He just passed on the Abrahamic covenant to Jacob and he kept that going. And then in chapter 29, we have the drama of Jacob falling in love with his cousin Rachel and marrying Rachel and as a little bonus, her sister Leah as well. But since Jacob didn't love Leah as he was supposed to, as his wife, God started giving her children first. Chapter 29, verse 31 says, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And now we have the narrative of the birth of Jacob's sons to Leah, six sons, Jacob's sons to Rachel, two sons, and to their maidservants, per the custom of that day, four more sons. Jacob worked for Laban for about 20 years before finally extricating himself from that situation to return home. But of course, to return home, he would have to face his past. He would have to face his brother Esau. Look with me at chapter 32, verses 3 and 5, 3 through 5. 
And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. He's trying to appease his brother's wrath. Verse 7 says, then Jacob was greatly afraid. His meeting with Esau goes much better than anticipated, and he eventually settles in the area of Shechem with the people known as the Hivites. They are a branch of the Canaanites, and and here we have one of the most disturbing events in all of Genesis. It's one of those that you just wonder why it's even here. Chapter 34, verse 1. Chapter 34 says, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And the soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now there's debate among scholars as to whether Dinah was actually raped or whether she was trying to intermingle with the Hivites and got herself into a bad situation. There's good evidence on both sides of that. doesn't make any difference. In any case, Dinah has been defiled. And so her brothers Simeon and Levi hatch a plot to trick the men of Shechem. The men of Shechem want to intermarry with the sons and with the daughter of Jacob and Their scheme was to eventually take Jacob's wealth away from him. Verse 23 of this chapter says, we're going to get everything that he has. It'll all be ours. And so Simeon and Levi pretend to go along with this idea, but they insist that all the men of Shechem must be circumcised first. If we're going to be one big happy family, then you're going to be just like us. And so on the day of the circumcision, when all the men were recovering in an act of mass murder, which would cost Simeon and Levi their father's blessing in the future. Chapter 34, verse 25. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. Well, after these events, Jacob moved his family back to Bethel. This is the first place he met with God in a dream. He was blessed by God there. And chapter 35 ends with the birth of Jacob's youngest son, Benjamin, to Rachel, but it was at the cost of Rachel's life. That was her last act on this earth to give birth to just her second son. And then we get a significant statement that God's plan to create a nation from Abraham is still in play, that he's still working. Look with me at chapter 35, verse 22, right at the very end. And in fact, in your Bible, it's probably placed geographically right before verse 23 is a new paragraph. The end of verse 22, now the sons of Jacob were 12. What is that? Well, that's the beginning of the nation of Israel. So there's our story. That's the saga of Jacob. What I want to do is talk about the offspring of God and the providence of God, because those are two really important themes for us to grasp and understand why this is such a key text for us in Genesis. The offspring of God. Go back with me now to chapter 25. And remember that Genesis is the story of the beginning of the outworking of God's plan to redeem mankind from sin, to restore his original kingdom plan. And this plan is hinged on offspring. 
It's hinged on the seed of woman, on the Genesis 3.15 seed of the woman who would save humanity from the evils of Satan, the evils of sin. And Genesis really highlights what we might call the theocentric involvement of this offspring, meaning the direct involvement of God in the subsequent generations, which ultimately lead to Jesus Christ. Now remember that in God's sovereign plan, Abraham had been promised a singular seed, a son through whom the promises of, of a future kingdom would be passed. And, but the irony here is that though he's promised this singular seed, his, his wife Sarah couldn't get pregnant for 25 years until finally in God's perfect timing, she has Isaac when she's 90 years old. I just want to track briefly for you the involvement of God in the offspring of the kingdom. Chapter 25, verse 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Once again, the promised offspring will come only at God's behest. Fast forward to the love of Jacob's life, Rachel, chapter 30. Verse 22, the love of Jacob's life. She couldn't have children either. Verse 22, then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. And she gave birth to Joseph, who would be instrumental in God's plan to form his chosen nation, but he wasn't the chosen line. In contrast to Rachel, Her older sister Leah was blessed by God immediately. Back in chapter 29, verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb and she became a baby machine. We had Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun. I mean, you can hardly take a breath as you read between these. And of course, her fourth son, Judah, would in fact be the chosen line through whom would come Messiah, Jesus Christ. But did you notice the pattern here? Sarah, the wife of Abraham, she's barren for a long time. Her daughter-in-law, Rebecca, is barren for a long time. Her daughter-in-law, Rachel, is barren for a long time. It seems like God's plan is never going to get off the ground. And all of a sudden, there's this baby explosion of 12 sons and at least one daughter. And by the time they go to Egypt, under Joseph's care, there are 70 family members And when that family left Egypt some 430 years later, Numbers 1 tells us that there were 603,550 fighting men. That doesn't include old men and wives and children. And so all of a sudden, this pitiful little family that can't seem to have one baby has tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, several million people. And some have said, well, that's ridiculous. If you do the math, it's actually entirely possible and quite probable. Now they're a nation, one that the Canaanites would fear. We've talked about this in BTI. Israel left Egypt with 603,550 fighting men. All of the Canaanites in all of Canaan probably had a a standing army of 100,000. And so, of course, there 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 was great fear on the part of the Canaanites because God was always in control of his offspring What does this do for us when we see elsewhere in Scripture the promised Messiah, the promised birth of the Son of God? It says, well, he did it miraculously with Sarah. He did it miraculously with Rebecca. He did it miraculously with Rachel. Why not Mary? 
And so it builds our faith that we're not surprised that it was God who brought about the glorious birth of Jesus Christ. That is the offspring of God. I want to go through the providence of God very briefly, and I, I struggled in my own heart whether to even bring this up because this could easily be an entire message on its own. The providence of God is the observable phenomenon that God makes a plan and yet he works through difficult, strange, odd, and even sinful human situations to bring about that plan. Even working through the condemned actions of people. The providence of God could take our entire evening. I I can't go through everything I want to, so what I did was I just made a list. I made a list of just 10 ways that the providence of God goes through this whole story because the story of Jacob is dripping with providence. Now, I'm just going to give you this list. Number one, Jacob sinned by stealing Esau's birthright, but that birthright was already by heavenly decree his anyway. Jacob didn't know that. He wasn't there when his mother received that oracle, but he did God's will through his own deception, and that's providence. There's a second Example, God reaffirmed the Abrahamic covenant to Isaac, Abraham's son, in Genesis 26, 2 through 5, and yet Isaac pulled exactly the same deceptive stunt that his father had in telling the king of the Philistines that Rebekah was his sister, and providentially, God protected him, and through that deception, multiplied Isaac's possessions 100 times, fulfilling the part of the Abrahamic covenant that I will give you personal blessing. There's a a third item of God's providence we could list. Through a quarrel over well rights, Isaac heard from the Lord a reaffirming that this land ultimately belonged to Isaac and his family just as God promised Abraham. And so over a quarrel, that was the time that God used to say, this land will be yours. So another example, Isaac sinfully showed his favoritism to Esau And Jacob fooled Isaac into giving Jacob the blessing of the firstborn, but it was already his by God's decree. This entire entire drama that takes verses and verses and verses to play out, it was already part of God's plan. Number five, this event, that event of the, the, the blessing being given to Jacob, this was used by God to send Jacob away. What happened when he got sent away? Well, he would meet Jacob, or he would meet uh, Rachel and Leah, and now the clan of Jacob is born. They begin to grow exponentially. Now you have the foundation of the nation of Israel. And, And what do we see all the way at the very end of our Bible? We see New Jerusalem with the names of these 12 sons inscribed on the walls, on the gates. And so... By the providence of God, Jacob's running for his life, and yet his family is born through this. We see another element of God's providence. Jacob's uncle Laban would be difficult. He would be a cheat. He would make Jacob's life miserable, and yet through this, Jacob would be enriched, just like Isaac was, and and ultimately would make his journey back home. There's a seventh Example of God's providence. Jacob would be tricked into marrying the wrong girl, and yet it would be through the wrong girl that Judah would be born. And through Judah comes the Lion of Judah, Jesus Christ, our Savior. We have this example. Judah's older three brothers would all disgrace themselves 
Chapter 34, Simeon and Levi would perpetrate the, the murder of the men of Shechem. Chapter 35, Reuben would have an affair with one of his father's concubines, making Judah the firstborn of Israel, as he rightfully ought to be. A ninth example, Simeon and Levi murdered the men of Shechem, but unknowingly they prevented the plot of the men of Shechem to intermarry with Jacob's family, which would have ruined the line of Abraham. It would have diluted that line forever. And so through their sin, they protected against that plot. They didn't even know it. And finally, unbeknownst to Jacob, while he was away for many years, his brother Esau had his heart changed by God such that it would save Jacob's life, save the life of his family, and save the start of the nation of Israel. And so when God makes a kingdom plan, he fulfills that kingdom plan. He works through his providence By the way, I I found this to be a great encouragement to my own life, and I hope it is to yours, concerning the providence of God. The life of Jacob is really a living illustration of William Cooper's glorious hymn, God moves in, in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. My favorite verse is verse four. It's so theologically comforting. Cooper says, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, But trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. How comforting. Jacob, you just go through his life and you wonder, how did he even survive? I mean, he made everybody around him mad. He should have been murdered by everybody. And yet, the providence of God is so clear, so beautiful. But what I want to do now is spend the rest of our time on the life of Jacob himself. I'd like to talk about the salvation of God. The salvation of God. This morning we talked about a humility-filled life from the lesson of Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. What does it look like when a life begins in great pride and self-reliance and ends in great humility and reliance upon the Lord? Well, Jacob tells us, Because the people of Israel, hearing this story from Moses, they're not only getting their nation's history in Jacob, they're also getting one of the most dramatic conversion stories in the entire Old Testament. And never can Israel say, in all of history, Israel can never say, we are a righteous nation because of the amazing father of our nation, Jacob. Really what they can say is, I'm amazed we're even here. Because if we're being honest and they were being honest, then they must see that God did a transformative work in the life of Jacob. That Jacob had to be converted just as every individual must be converted. That no one will ride the coattails of their family into the kingdom of God. In Mark 4, uh, Jesus used the farming illustration of seed and soil to explain the nature of God's gracious salvation from sin. The gospel of grace is the seed. The recipient of the message of the gospel is the soil. And he gave the four types of soil, if you remember. There's the hardened soil of the pathway beside the field, the rocky soil, which doesn't allow the seed to to take root, the thorny soil, which chokes out the seed with worldly desires, and then there's the good soil in which the gospel flourishes and bears fruit. So I want to borrow that analogy from Jesus to examine the salvation of God in Jacob. So here's how we'll divide our thinking. We'll look at first the unfit soil, then the prepared soil, the planted seed, and the fruit of salvation. This is a remarkable conversion story. So first, let's look at the unfit soil. 
What was Jacob like when we first meet him? Well, we go back once again to Genesis 25, and we get an indication right at the very beginning. Chapter 25, verse 24. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So there's already a battle raging in in Rebekah's womb between the brothers. And out comes the second of the twins hanging on to his brother's heel. They named him Jacob. It's a, it's a word play on the Hebrew word for heel, and it means heel grabber. And in typical form in, in the ancient world, his name would come to characterize his personality, and Jacob would come to mean, because of his character, deceiver or cheat. Even today, if someone says, you're pulling my leg, what does that mean? It means you're, you're lying to me, you're cheating me, you're deceiving me. Jacob was a conniver. He didn't rely on the God of his fathers. He relied on his own wits, his own ability to manipulate the situation. Clearly very intelligent. And he'll show this for time after time after time. Esau and Jacob had vastly different constitutions. Esau loved to hunt. He was a man of nature. Uh, Jacob was, we might call him, indoorsy. That was just his nature. Chapter 25, verse 27 says he was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Jacob preferred to use his wits rather than his hands. Why work hard when you can trick somebody else into doing it? I think that was probably his motto. Chapter 25, beginning in verse 29, Jacob took advantage of a vulnerable moment in Esau's life. Esau was hungry. He was exhausted from actually working. And Jacob had made stew. And so Jacob conned Esau out of his birthright in exchange for a bowl of stew. Now, we won't comment on Esau's lack of thought and intelligence Because Jacob tricked him, he picked the most vulnerable moment. But the birthright in the ancient Near East was incredibly important. This was essentially the legal family rights of the firstborn. It it meant the right to a double inheritance, and it meant the right to be the head of the family upon the death of the father. Now, obviously, Esau didn't think much of being the head of the chosen family of God, but Jacob chose to make that most vulnerable moment to make that deal. But the birthright alone wasn't enough for Jacob. Since Jacob was Rebekah's favorite son and Esau was Isaac's favorite, Rebekah went to battle on behalf of Jacob. It seems that Jacob had a good teacher when it came to being deceptive. His mother was quite good at it. Rebekah didn't just want Jacob to have the birthright of the family. He wanted Jacob to have the blessing as well, the prophetic word of future prosperity given by his father Isaac. And so chapter 27 outlines the infamous deceit of Jacob pretending to be Esau, taking advantage of Isaac's failing eyesight. And near the end of the chapter, in verse 38, the the blessing of Isaac couldn't be rescinded, and you hear the pitiful cry of Esau, and it rings out even today. Chapter 27, verse 38, Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. And what was the result? Verse 41, Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. 
This is the ancient Near East. When the man says, I'm going to kill somebody, he often followed through on that threat. Jacob had essentially stolen Esau's future. He stole his birthright. He stole his blessing. And it resulted in a planned murder. Jacob the younger being favored and Esau the older with murderous intentions. What is this? This is Cain and Abel playing out all over again. And now there would be dire consequences in Jacob's life. He would have to run. And so he entered into another plot with his mother, Rebekah, to escape for the time being. Rebekah went to Isaac and complained of the Hittite women whom Esau had married. Chapter 26, verse 35, she said, they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. So she really played it up. Chapter 27, verse 46. Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? In other words, if Jacob marries a Hittite, I'll just go off and die somewhere, but don't worry about me, I'll be fine. And so, fully knowing that a happy wife is a happy life, Isaac said, sounds good to me. And so, Rebekah played on this to get Isaac to send Jacob back to Abraham's extended family just to save his life. He goes back to Padan Aram, more than 500 miles away from Beersheba, where Isaac and his family had settled plenty of distance to keep him safe. But Rebekah's plan was to just wait until Esau cooled off a little, then she would send for Jacob. That was her plan. But her deceit would have dire consequences for both of them. Jacob would never see his mother again. She would die before they're ever reunited. And having already given Jacob his blessing, Isaac blessed Jacob once again before he left. Chapter 28, 3 and 4 that we read, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and your offspring with you so that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. You know what screams of this passage, it screams out is the silence of Jacob. He just had passed on to him the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant. And we said a couple of weeks ago, probably the greatest set of promises God ever gave a single human being. Jacob had that passed on to him and he's quiet because all he cares about is I better run to save my own life. Isaac had just passed on the baton of the Abrahamic covenant. Jacob's silent. Jacob has firmly established his character. He is self-centered. He is self-focused. He's self-oriented. He is a liar. He is a cheat. He is unfit soil. And should the judgment of God had come at this moment, Jacob would have been condemned. But God has a way of graciously preparing the soil of the heart of drawing men and women to himself. And so now we could look at the prepared soil, the prepared soil that God will begin working on Jacob In chapter 28, Jacob leaves Beersheba to escape the wrath of Esau. And as he slept in the wilderness, he dreamed a dream given to him by God. This was the dream of the ladder or the staircase with the angels of God ascending and descending and the Lord standing at the top. This is on the land that God promised to give to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And it shows that the plan of God is fully in action, that there are heavenly dealings happening This is the first time now that Jacob is recorded as being alone and the first time that God confronts Jacob directly. Jacob was afraid of God when he awoke and began to have a new sense of the awesomeness of the God of his fathers. 
Chapter 28, verse 17, this is after his dream. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? There is none other. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. And you might say, well, that's nice. That's wonderful. No, it's not wonderful. We have to note that when his grandfather Abraham saw the Lord and his angels, Genesis 18, he welcomed them. We have to note that when his father Isaac saw the Lord, chapter 26, verses 24 and 25, he welcomed him and, quote, called upon the name of the Lord. But when Jacob saw the Lord and his angels, he was afraid. There's no relationship there. Jacob now has a greater understanding of the Lord, but he seems to reserve wholehearted devotion still for himself. Chapter 28, verse 20 Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house and all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Now, this isn't the idea that Jacob is trying to bargain with God. It's more that he's having a let's see what God does attitude. If God does all of these things, then I will fully commit to him there's still a hesitancy that says let me see if god will prove himself let me see if god is good enough for me then i will serve him and so to continue preparing the soil of jacob's heart god creates a life for jacob in which he gets a a a taste of his own medicine a taste in large gulping bitter doses Because if Jacob thought he was a good conniver, he's about to meet his match. He's about to meet the master, his uncle Laban. And Laban is going to take him apart. Let's go through the list. Laban tricked Jacob into marrying his oldest daughter, Leah, first. How is that possible? Is there any other time in history where you wake up with the wrong woman? (laughs) This is called, she is called by Dr. Gordon Wynnum, quote, Rachel's ugly elder sister. And there is reasonable biblical evidence that this is true. And so in the morning, when the veil comes off, the shock on Jacob's face, A, who are you? And B, man, I mean, you're not the one I looked for. That's just his reaction. And so Laban made it right. Laban was a great guy. He said, look, Jacob, you only worked for seven years for Rachel. And I know I gave you Leah for a mere another seven years. You can have Rachel. And so through Leah, Rachel, and their servants, now Jacob began having sons and a daughter while working for his uncle Laban. And during this time, when Jacob's family had grown now all the way to Rachel's uh, son, Joseph, the 11th son in the family, chapter 30, Jacob requested to leave to go back home, but, but then he thought of something. He told Laban, I'll tell you what, I'll stay with you if... You give me all the speckled and spotted sheep and the goats and the black lambs. Let me go through your flock and get them. And look at Laban's answer. Chapter 30, verse 34. Jacob offers this deal. Just let me have all the striped and spotted and all that. Chapter 30, verse 34. Laban said, good, let it be as you said. But that day, Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, everyone that had white on it and every lamb that was black and put them in the charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days journey between himself and Jacob. And Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. In other words, 
Jacob goes through the flock to collect the deal, to collect on this deal. I'm going to get all the striped, all the spotted, all the speckled. And they're gone. They're not there. He's met his match in Laban. Here's another example. By God's grace, Jacob's flocks thrived anyway because Laban's flock started giving birth to speckled and spotted and striped offspring all over the place, prospering Jacob greatly. And, and the Lord finally told Jacob to go home. Chapter 31, verse 3, and in the course of discussions with his wives, we find out the overall picture of how Jacob had been treated. Look at chapter 31, verse 6. This had been going on for years. Jacob is telling his wives, you know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. For at least two decades, Laban had repeatedly conned Jacob. What was God doing? He was letting Jacob have a 20-year look in the mirror at his own nature. We see more evidence that Jacob was still hard-hearted and fairly indifferent before God. During the time when his children were being born to Rachel and Leah, end of chapter 29 all the way through chapter 30, the two wives and the narrator of the story refer repeatedly to the Lord in reference to the birth of the children. That he is the God who sees. He is the God who hears. He is worthy of praise. He is the rewarder of the faithful. He is the vindicator of the righteous. He is the God who gives gifts. He remembers his own. He remembers, he removes disgrace. But during that entire narrative, Jacob mentions God once and that's in anger at Rachel when she's grieved at not being able to have children and Jacob says am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb his wives have more faith than he does and Jacob was still relying on his own conniving when he came up with the speckled and spotted idea to slowly take Laban's wealth chapter 30 verses 11 through 13 tells us that God did this for him And yet Jacob thought he'd better give God some help by placing partially peeled sticks to make them striped in front of the watering trough so that when the animals were breeding there, they would bring forth speckled, striped, and spotted offspring. Now the text doesn't tell us whether Jacob actually believed that that was doing something superstitiously or maybe it was just a ruse to make Laban think that that was the technique. Man, where did he learn this thing? Striped sticks and I'm losing all my sheep? It doesn't matter because in either case, what was Jacob doing? He was planning a deception. Again, making his own plans. And so did God bless Jacob because of Jacob or in spite of Jacob? I think our assessment would have to be that he blessed Jacob in spite of Jacob. And so after talking to his wives, Jacob decided it was time to run away. The Hebrew is skedaddle. That means we're going to get out of here. He took everything he owned and he took off. Three days later, Laban found out, and a week after that, Laban and his men caught Jacob, caught his family. And by the way, when Jacob's family were, they were preparing to leave, Rachel thought she would take some souvenirs. She took the household gods of Laban. They were likely valuable, and they were cherished by the godless Laban. And so when Laban caught Jacob, he asked, why did you trick me? I would have sent you away with a party. Of course not. He wouldn't have actually done that. Laban and Jacob had been tricking each other for years and Laban asked about the household gods and Jacob said, I don't have them. You can can search. And he gets to his own daughter, Rachel. Rachel joined in, lied to her father to protect the fact that she was sitting on top of the household gods in the camel saddle and she was using her womanly wiles to trick her own dad. 
Now, we can assume with fair certainty that Jacob eventually found out that Rachel had the household gods, but what we find out is that he didn't get rid of them. Not yet. Jacob is still not converted, and yet the Lord continues working to prepare the soil. And now if Jacob goes back home, he's going to have to face Esau. Time does not heal all wounds and, in fact, in some cases makes it, makes it worse. Two decades have passed. The last interaction between Jacob and Esau was Esau's intent to murder Jacob. And so as Jacob went on his way, the angels of God met him. Chapter 32, verses 1 and 2, indicating God's presence with Jacob. But does Jacob trust the Lord? Is that good enough, having the angels of God? No, no. He trusts yet again in his own strength and he comes up with a scheme to survive the upcoming meeting with Esau. He does four things. First, chapter 32, verses three through five, Jacob sends an advance party to Esau with a promise of extensive gifts. Verse five, in order that I might find favor in your sight. The second thing he does is he makes a contingency plan to avoid at least complete annihilation by dividing his people and his possessions into two camps in case one is attacked, then the other one can escape. And what was Jacob's spiritual demeanor during this time? Chapter 32, verse 7, once again, then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. The third thing he did was he prays a prayer of desperation. And you might say, well, that's good. He's praying. Not if you read this prayer. There, there are hints of humility, but there's no repentance. The prayer is all about him. It's a prayer motivated by personal fear. Chapter 32, verse 11. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. For I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. And then he holds God's promises over his own head. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. This isn't a prayer of faith. This is a prayer of trying to manipulate God. And finally, in his own scheme, he attempts to buy Esau's forgiveness with many gifts and putting space between them. In other words, a, a giant set of gifts comes and a few hours later, here comes another one. And a few hours later, here comes another one. And then Jacob would finally come at the very, very end. Chapter 32, beginning in verse 13, gives this list of 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 lambs, 30 milking camels and calves, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 male donkeys. What is this? This is a fortune. This is an absolute fortune. And what's his motive? Chapter 32, verse 20. For he thought, in the middle of the verse, for he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. Now we put all this together. Do you see how God is preparing the soil of Jacob's heart? Jacob has run from his home. He'll never see his beloved mother again. God appears to Jacob in a dream, showing him that God is active in the land that he will give him. He gets tricked into marrying the wrong daughter and has to work seven more years for the daughter he really wanted. He gives him wives who seem to acknowledge God more than he does. He had his wages changed by Laban ten times, Laban continually taking advantage of him for two decades He puts him in a near-death confrontation with Laban, protected only by God. He puts him in a position to face his past sin and to be terrified of losing everything, to be afraid and distressed. 
And after all of his conniving, after all of his scheming, after all of his self-focus, Jacob's life is best characterized by chapter 32, verse 7. He was afraid and distressed. He's at the end of himself. He's quite literally now done. The next day will determine if he lives or dies and if his family lives or dies. The soil is now prepared. He's at the end of himself. By the way, this is such obvious evidence that salvation is the work of God. And what is our greatest tool of evangelism? The greatest tool of evangelism we have is to pray that the soil of the heart of the unconverted will be prepared for the gospel. Jacob was unfit soil. God prepared the soil. Third, let's look at the planted seed. The planted seed. Now in the softened and plowed and broken soil of Jacob's heart, God will plant the seed of faith in one of the most unique encounters with God in all of the Bible. Jacob sends his family and all of his camps across the river Jabbok, and he is now utterly alone. And suddenly Jacob finds himself at night and he's wrestling with some guy. Some guy comes and attacks him and and they're wrestling in the night and this goes on and on and on. And the man allows Jacob to prevail in this wrestling. But then the man touches Jacob's hip. And that, that sounds innocuous enough, but when he touched his hip, his hip socket was dislocated. I'm told by medical professionals that is the most difficult joint to dislocate and incredibly painful. But Jacob knew with whom he wrestled. Chapter 32, verse 27. And he, that is the man with whom he's wrestling, he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And God renamed him Israel, meaning God strives. Not Jacob strives. God strives. And Jacob declared in verse 30, I have seen God face to face and yet my life has been delivered. And he limped away as the sun was rising and Jacob was different now. He had things now he did not have before. Look at the signs of salvation. Look at the signs of the planted seed that has now taken root. First of all, he had a proper view of himself. He went limping away. He's not dumb. He knows that The man with whom he wrestled let him win initially because all the man who was God had to do was touch his hip and bam, he's done. Jacob had used his own guile to win over Esau, to win over Isaac, to win over Laban. But Jacob lost to the Lord. And he had a painful awareness that he must submit to the Lord who will never be defeated. And I'm told that not properly treated a dislocated hip Will uh, thigh would, would, would make you limp for the rest of your life. So he had a proper view of himself. He now also had a hunger for the Lord. Remember when he received the, the Abrahamic covenant passed on to him from his father Isaac and his silence just screams out to us. But now there's just not, a, there's not this trite acknowledgement of God's existence, but there's a yearning for God, a yearning for his blessing. Chapter 32, verse 26 Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. His life may end the next day and here he is face to face with God and he's, he's got a hold of him and he says, I'm not letting you go. How sweet to the ears of the Lord those words must have been. That's what he was aiming for all along. He had a proper view of himself. He had a hunger for the Lord and Jacob confessed what he was. 
He confessed what he was. The Lord asked him, what is your name? He's not trying to get information. He knows. He said, Jacob, deceiver, conniver, cheat. This is tantamount to a confession of unworthiness. After being tricked out of his father's blessing, Esau said to Isaac, is he not rightly named Jacob? And now Jacob is saying, I am rightly named Jacob. I am a cheat. I am a sinner. I am unworthy. You know what we call that in the New Testament? We call that repentance. And now he's transformed. He's converted. And so many new things happen now. We could make a long list. I'll give you a short one. He's given a new name. This is a name focused on the Lord. No more known as the deceiver. The new name now indicates his new character. He's one who has striven with God and with men and has prevailed. Israel belongs to the Lord in heart and in soul now. He's given a new power in the Lord. He has prevailed. He's given a new blessing in the Lord. Chapter 32, verse 29. He's given a new story, a new testimony. Instead of, I have tricked and connived my way through this situation again, now his story is, I have seen God face to face and yet my life has been delivered. He's received God's mercy and his grace. He's given a new beginning. He met with God and wrestled with God in the darkness of the night. And he walks away brand new as the sun comes up. And he's given a new dependence. His limp would remind him that he belonged to God, that God could have destroyed him but spared him. There's no doubt as to who is sovereign now. Jacob was unfit soil. God prepared the soil and God planted the seed which took root in Jacob's heart. And now, finally, we get to see the fruit of salvation. The fruit of salvation. Now the fateful meeting with Esau is finally going to happen, only not the way Jacob originally intended. Before, he was going to have everyone else go first. And the only company left to go was his family, his wife and kids. They were going to go And then he was going to bring up the rear absolutely dead last. But now, chapter 33, verse 3, he himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. This is in spite of the fact that Esau now is a personal army of 400 men who could have wiped out Jacob's little company of wives, children, and flocks. And how humble Jacob is, bowing to the ground seven times to his brother. I suppose it didn't even occur to Jacob that maybe Esau had changed. Esau himself has been transformed at some level. Chapter 33, verse 4. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And not only is Esau truly glad to see his twin, Esau was thrilled to meet Jacob's family. Who is this with you? And he reconciles. The fruit of salvation is manifested in repentance and heart change. And look what Jacob does. When all the hubbub had settled down, Esau asked him a question. He said, what do you mean by all this company that I have met? All the gifts that Esau had received from Jacob, the the caravan after caravan of these gifts. And Jacob said, I I gave them to you. And initially Esau refused the gift of great wealth. He says, I have plenty. I mean, I, I have everything I need. But Jacob, the one who had stolen Esau's blessing from their father, stolen the rights of the firstborn, 
Chapter 33, verse 11. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you. Esau knew what Jacob was doing. Jacob was making restitution. And you know what Esau did? He accepted it. He received it. Because Jacob, at least in token form, returned what he had stolen. Chapter 34. The terrible situation with his daughter Dinah in Shechem might have brought another opportunity for Jacob to connive and to scheme. Maybe he could have said, oh yeah, those guys want to take over everything we have. We're going to take over everything they have. And when Simeon and Levi slaughter the men of of Shechem by tricking them, the old Jacob might, might have said, boy, that's a chip off the old block. Good job, boys. The end justifies the means. But chapter 34, verse 30 He's furious with his sons and he stands up to his still unrighteous sons and he rebukes them sharply. In verse 30, then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me. And he rebukes them. And now Jacob returns to Bethel, the first place he met God in the dream and in the culture in which everyone carried around their own little household idols. When they came to Bethel, chapter 35, verse 2 Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go to Bethel that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And now God confirms the earlier covenant with Jacob and reaffirms the Abrahamic covenant with Jacob. Chapter 35, verse 9, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. But God would continue to allow tragedy in Jacob's life. He would lose the love of his life, Rachel, in childbirth, and then lose Rachel's firstborn, Joseph, to the schemes of his brothers. But when we see Jacob again after being reunited with Joseph in Egypt, he now has a tender personal relationship with his God. Genesis 46, 2 and 3, God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for there I will make you into a great nation. And Jacob is an old man, meets literally the most powerful man in the world, the Pharaoh of Egypt, He's humble. He's self-effacing. Genesis 47 records, Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. He's humble. He's contrite. 
And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. And his final words on this earth consisted of the blessing that he imparted to all of his sons, not just his favorite, unlike his father had done. And he commanded that he be buried with Abraham and Isaac back in Canaan in the land that would one day be theirs. And this man who tried to connive and scheme and who once upon a time put his head on a rock in Bethel because he had nothing. When he died, the entire nation of Egypt mourned his death for 70 days. The honor that Jacob had sought to win for himself before his conversion was given to him by the grace of God through his conversion. If anybody says that salvation must be wrought by the work of man, they don't know the life of Jacob because the work of salvation is God's work. This wasn't a joint effort between Jacob and God. God changed his heart. God came to him. God wounded him into submission And God blessed him as one now personally converted to the worship of the one true living God. And and so in Jacob, not only did Israel now have a history of their nation, they had an example of what transformative faith looked like. Our Father, thank you for the example of Jacob. Thank you for his life that encourages us. You can take the worst of the worst and you can transform them. Because we are the worst of the worst. I would have been Jacob. I would have connived. I would have schemed. Because in my heart, I am a liar and I am a cheat. And so, Lord, we praise you for your grace. We praise you for this example of how you continue to plow the soil of Jacob's heart until that moment when you wrestled him and you won. And you took him for your own. And we thank you for those moments that you wrestled our hearts and you won. And you took us for your own. And so in Jacob, not only do we have the the incredible story of your kingdom coming to pass and, and moving forward through the future nation of Israel, through Christ, through the church, and on into eternity, but we see a man who is just like us. And yet you came after him and you converted him and you made him like Christ. We love you and we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.